So I want to welcome you here this morning. Uh, if, you're, if you're new with us, or if you're watching online, or uh, on the CW, or uh, if you're at our downtown campus, a special welcome to you. Uh, let me explain, for those of you who are here in the room, uh, just what's going on with what you got when you walked in the room here. Uh, if you tear this uh, section off, this is a communication card, especially if you're new. We want to know um, how we can get a hold of you and kind of uh, who you are and your kids and all that stuff. Um, share your prayer requests with us. We pray for you every week. Um, and so that's really important for you to share with us. Um, also check one of those boxes on how you want to connect with us here at Central. And then go ahead and drop that uh, along with your regular offering in the, uh, the boxes on the way out the door. And this, this wider portion uh, is just some announcements, some things happening at the church, and a spot for you to take notes. Uh, yeah, that's it. All right, so it's, uh, it's been three months since I've preached here um, up on this stage, and it's, uh, there's been a few things that have happened in my life in those three months. Uh, I, got, I got a truck. Uh, I got a dog. So now I'm two-thirds of the way to a country song. <laughs> Almost there. Uh, so my dog, his name is Murphy. There's some photos of him here. He's been a real, yeah, aw, right? He's been a real game changer. Um, he's cute and he's furry and he's lovable and all that stuff. But he's also a ton of work. So sometimes I, I, I just ask myself, what were we thinking? And that's the problem. We weren't thinking. We were manipulated and brainwashed by our kids to get this dog, two of whom don't even live at home anymore. They don't have to deal with him at 5.30 in the morning. Um, but it, it is just, it has been uh, an experience. Um, we're, we weren't dog people. And, and trust me, having a now 65-pound puppy in the house is kind of like having a toddler if that toddler was also a velociraptor. Does some damage. We'll just say that. Um, so Murphy has made 2021 a little more interesting for us. I'm glad that this new year seems to be trending well from a COVID standpoint. You know, uh, vaccinations are up, hospitalizations are down. Uh, things seem to be going well, and, and things here at Central uh, are are going great. Uh, I think so. I heard 5,000 people moved to Sioux Falls in 2020. And I'm convinced half of them now attend Central. It's, it's a lot of people here. Uh, so which, yeah, hey, you can clap for that. It's great. God's doing some, some cool stuff. So everybody talks about how 2020, you know, was the worst year ever, right? I, I get it. It was a hot plate of garbage. It was bad. Um, but, you know, catastrophic seasons are, are nothing new in the history of our country or our planet, uh, wars, pandemics, uh, economic collapse, uh, you know, that kind of just comes with the territory. Uh, one of those eras where life in this country was not all just sunshine and puppy dogs uh, was 1979 and 1980. Anyone here old enough to remember that era in our country? It was, it was rough. Um, the country was still reeling from, from losing the Vietnam War. Uh, there was a revolution in Iran that had global impact, including a, a major gas crisis here in the U.S. So there were long lines of cars just, just waiting to fill up their tank. 
uh, there was actual American hostages being held in Iran. And President Jimmy Carter, God bless his peanut farming heart, he just seemed a little over his head. Um, not, not to mention, uh, interest rate was like 19%. And so, good luck borrowing money to get a mortgage or, or a car. Also, uh, was the height of the Cold War. The Soviet Union had just invaded Afghanistan, and it looked like they were building momentum to try to take over the world. People were fearful that nuclear weapons would literally destroy the planet. Things were not good. You know that when 60 Minutes is the number one TV show, uh, that the country needs a morale boost, right? Then came the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. The Olympics are always a great time uh, to just kindle national pride and, and bring out the best in people. Uh, one of the highlights, though, of, of this particular Olympics was USA and Soviet Union. Cold War, they're two global superpowers on a geopolitical standpoint, um, but not so much in the hockey rink. The Soviets were the best team in the world. They were full of seasoned professionals who had just beaten the NHL All-Star team in an exhibition game. This, this is the best team in the world. The Americans were a bunch of scrappy college kids and no-name amateurs. But here they were in the semifinals. David versus Goliath. Now, for the U.S. team to win, I mean, they had no shot, right? In order for them to beat the Soviets, it would take a miracle. Johnson over to Ramsey. The Yelechinov gets checked by Ramsey. McClanahan is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. That is perhaps the most iconic moment in sports history. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. I love that moment. I'm Canadian, and I love that moment. <laughs> Canada finished sixth somehow. I have no idea what was going on. So was this win by Team USA a miracle? You know, I'm sure it was the answer to, to a lot of different prayers, but no, technically, it wasn't a miracle. God didn't reach down and, and tie the Soviet skate laces together. So while it technically wasn't a miracle, it was exactly what this country needed. People needed to believe in something again. People needed hope. They needed joy. They needed life. And that's exactly what the miracle on ice gave them. We're in a sermon series called The Life. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. And John is a really interesting gospel writer for several reasons, but one of the main ones is that he hardly mentions any 
miracles of Jesus. In fact, he only highlights seven of them, and he calls those particular miracles signs. Signs are miraculous events that point to the true identity of Jesus. So John himself describes the purpose of these signs in chapter, 12, or chapter 20. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And here's what I hope we'll see as a result of our being here together today. It's really simple. Jesus gives life and is life. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So last week, Pastor Jeff uh, looked at the first sign in the book of John, Jesus turning water into wine. That happened in chapter 2. And now we're skipping ahead to chapter 4. So, so what happens in between those, those two chapters, in between those two signs? Well, um, Jesus and his disciples travel from Cana in, in Galilee down to Jerusalem for the festival uh, known as Passover. And Jesus does a, a few things down there, including kicking the, the money changers out of the temple complex. Um, but, but here's the interesting thing. John says Jesus performed miracles, again, he calls them signs, while in Jerusalem, but he doesn't mention any of them by name. Here's the weird thing. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem, pull up that slide, thank you, uh, at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in a person's heart. Hmm. Let's allow that to marinate a little bit. Now, it might be easiest, or easier for us to, to picture the events of these few chapters uh, by looking at a map. So we'll do that. So uh, if you look way up there, Cana in Galilee, uh, is where Jesus performed that first miracle. And then he travels down to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, stays there for a while, and then he, he was about to head back to Galilee. And on his way back to Galilee, he spends some time in Samaria. We covered this a few weeks ago, um, where he has incredible ministry success at this town called Sychar. Okay? And he has this spiritual conversation with a woman at the well, remember? And, and she goes and tells everybody in the town about Jesus, and many Samaritans come to faith. But here's the thing. They come to faith without seeing Jesus perform any signs. Look at this. Chapter 4, verse 42. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves, now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. So let's get this straight. People who saw him perform miracles in Jerusalem, religious Jews, Jesus thought they were 
like my kids would say, a little sus. They were, they were a little sketchy, well, a little questionable, kind of shady. But the people in Samaria, half-breeds and heretics, who just heard his word, didn't see him do any signs, they had genuine faith. Again, here's my profound theological insight. Hmm. Okay, so that's the context. All right, now on to our main passage. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own country, yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. Now, so Jesus is from Nazareth in Galilee, uh, and so he's going to his home country, and yet he knows he won't be honored there. He won't be accepted there. Notice, it says that the Galileans welcomed him, not that they accepted him or had faith in him. The first chapter of John's gospel sets the stage for this. Talking about Jesus, John writes, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. See, the Galilean welcome was based on what they had seen Jesus do. So so it wasn't based on who he was. It was based on who they wanted him to be. So it turns out theirs is a selfish, superficial level of belief. And Jesus knows this going in. Remember it says he didn't trust them. And we'll see why in a minute. Back to our passage, uh, verse 46. As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, who was about to die. So, somehow, news that this miracle worker is back in Galilee, travels from the hill country of Cana, about 20 miles down, to the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, to Capernaum, where this uh, royal official hears about it. Now, this official probably works for Herod Antipas, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee. He's, he's essentially a regional king. If you know anything about Herod, he is one wicked dude. He, he marries his brother's wife, and then when John the Baptist calls him out on it, uh, John ends up with his head on a platter. So we don't know much about this royal official other than he works for a tyrant, Herod. He loves his son. He thinks Jesus can heal his son, and he ain't too proud to beg. It's ironic that this officer of the king, this nobleman, for all his political power, can do nothing to make his son healthy. And so he turns to this itinerant rabbi who's the only person he thinks can heal his son. And this is where the plot thickens. Look at verse 48. Jesus told him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now this verse is key 
to understanding this entire passage. So, so if you've been kind of tuning out, daydreaming about how you're going to get a new puppy for the last little bit, okay, I need you to hone back in here, all right? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. I'll give, I'll give you a moment to refocus. We'll come back to this important point in, in just a second. Uh, this statement by Jesus seems to be putting the official to the test. But this guy is undeterred. Verse 49, the official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. Okay, who saw that coming? This powerful royal official who's never met Jesus, knows him by reputation only, is begging and pleading with Jesus to travel the 20 miles back to Capernaum to to heal his son. But when Jesus says, go, your son will live, the man obeys without question. He believes and he goes. He, He doesn't insist on seeing the miracle firsthand. Like the Samaritans, he simply takes Jesus at his word. He's like, Okay, I trust you. I think in that moment, something inside this man comes alive. He sees Jesus as more than just a miracle worker. This royal official, the father of a sick boy, passes the test. He doesn't need to see signs and wonders. He sees a savior. Okay, I said that in verse 48, Uh, We find the centerpiece for this whole passage. So let's back up and look at it a little more closely. Okay, you with me? So Jesus is speaking to this official, but wherever Jesus went, he drew a crowd, right? So uh, there's probably dozens, if not hundreds of people within earshot when when this conversation happens. This is one of the reasons why English is a confusing language. Uh, The original Greek, Jesus uses the plural form of the word you. And we don't have that in English, unless you count y'all. So, so some versions uh, translate this sentence as, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So he's actually addressing a crowd of Galileans. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all not gonna believe. Okay, so what, Jesus? So, so we won't believe unless we see you do some awesome stuff. Isn't that the whole point of signs? But there's a subtle difference here between the word signs and the phrase signs and wonders. And honestly, I didn't know the difference until this week. I was reading a commentary about this concept, and, and I thought, man, I wish somebody could dumb this down for me a little bit. I wish I could just unpack this. Um, and so I, I emailed the author of the commentary, and he, he replied the next day. And I was like, this really happened. It was great. Um, and, and he was super insightful and helpful. Uh, and so Dr. Gary Burge from Calvin Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, if you ever see this or hear this, thank you. I, I hope I do justice to your explanation and, and that I don't spout some heresy or something. Um, so I'll give it a shot. Um, here goes. So a sign, like we already covered, is a divine revelation that points us to the character of God. 
But when Jesus or when John uses the term signs and wonders, it changes the meaning to more, more like just an incredible event, something that just makes us say, wow. With a sign, Jesus doesn't just want to heal. Doesn't just want to heal a disease or, or, or walk on water or give sight to the blind. But, but through this divine intervention, he wants to show us himself and make a claim on our lives. Jesus gives life and is life, but we don't always want his version of life. We want a miracle. We want signs and wonders. We want the cool stuff, but not a sign. That requires too much of us. Throughout the book of John, lots of people want Jesus to prove himself. You know, they, they, want, him, they want to be around him, not just because of who he is, but because of what he can do for them. They don't care what a sign reveals about his character or his nature or what it reveals about their own hearts. Like the little kid on the tricycle in the movie The Incredibles, they want him to do, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. Now, don't get me wrong. Miracles were an important part of the ministry of Jesus, and they led people to faith. But the problem here is with human nature. In his email, Dr. Burge says this. People want a miracle for their self-interest, but rarely do they want a sign. That is something that moves them closer to God. The problem with having a miracle-centered faith is that it makes God the dispenser of products, healings. But Jesus wants to distribute more than this. We at Central have fought against this consumer mentality for years. And it's such a tough battle to fight because the attitude is so pervasive. It doesn't see Jesus as our ultimate desire, but as like some kind of vending machine to give us something else that we desire. We think he's there to give us what we want and to help us solve our problems because most of us are we're primarily concerned with just being happy instead of knowing and serving God. Consumer Christians don't love Jesus. They use Jesus. They use him to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. They use him to get what they want, whether that's, that's peace or purpose or, or power or prestige, but seeking even really good things can prevent us from experiencing the best thing, life with Jesus. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper asks this question. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Yes, Jesus generally makes life better. He, he can help mend our broken marriages. 
He can help us overcome our addictions. He can bring real healing to our lives. And believe me, my family could use some healing right now. I've got a jacked up shoulder. Uh, My wife has a bad back and chronic insomnia. Uh, My cat's got kidney stones. We need healing. But asking for these things can't be the only way that we interact with Jesus. That's a transactional relationship. As a parent, if the only time your kids interact with you is when they want something, that's a problem. See, this way of relating to Jesus falls so short because Jesus isn't just the means to an end. He is the end. Jesus isn't just a ticket to heaven or health or happiness. He is the destination. Jesus doesn't just improve our life. He is life. This series is called The Life because Jesus offers abundant life. But this life isn't just from him. It's life with him. Jesus gives life is life. We find true life not in what Jesus gives us, but in who he is. Back to our passage, verse 51. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. And the father realized that that was the very time Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. So Jesus performs this long-distance healing. The boy is 20 miles away when Jesus speaks his healing into reality. But he could have been 2,000 miles away. Because Jesus' power isn't limited by our proximity. And his power also isn't limited by the strength or weakness of our faith. In a a similar but completely separate event that's recorded in a couple of different Gospels, uh, Jesus heals a Roman centurion's servant from a distance. And he praises the centurion's great faith. But here... Jesus says nothing about this official's sincerity. He simply shows him grace and compassion, and he heals his son. Now, the story wraps up saying that the official's household, his oikos, believed in Jesus. But what if the son had not been healed? What if he would have died? Would the man refuse to believe? Does Jesus still deserve our trust, our devotion, our very lives when our prayers go unanswered? Even when we don't see him do something amazing? Last year I had two people really close to me who were on death's doorstep because of of COVID. My friend Rick made a full recovery. My friend Tim died. Both of these guys loved Jesus deeply. Both were great husbands and great dads. 
Both had hundreds of people praying for them. So why did God heal Rick and not Tim? I don't know. What I do know is this. Even when a miracle doesn't happen, God is still good. Jesus Christ is still worthy of my life. Do you believe that? As I've been studying um, this passage this week, I've had this old song stuck in my head. Um, here's just a few lines from there. I cannot doubt the work of God. It's plain for all to see. The miracles that he has wrought should lead to Calvary. The love of God, O oh power divine, is wonderful to see. The miracle of grace performed within the heart of me. I believe in miracles. I've seen a soul set free. Miraculous, the change in one, redeemed through Calvary. The greatest miracle that Jesus has done in my life is taking this heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh. It's taking the soul that was in bondage to sin and setting it free. It's taking this boy who was spiritually dead and giving him life. Now at the bottom of your notes, there are some questions for reflection. And so I want you to pull that out now. I want you to take a look at those. They say this, am I a follower of Jesus because of who he is or because of what he gives? Do I want signs, things that draw me closer to Jesus or just signs and wonders, just the cool stuff? And what is my faith based on? Jesus' power or his presence? I want you to take some time today even, maybe even while the worship band plays his last song, and just wrestle with the answers to these questions. We've also produced this card that you found in your bulletin that, that gives links to some really good resources to allow you to, uh, to dig deeper into this passage and see what God wants to teach you but what he wants to do in your life as well. So whether you call yourself a Christian or not, maybe you're here today and you realize that you've just been using Jesus as a means to an end. You've cared more about what he can do for you than what he wants to do in you. What can you do about that? Simply repent and believe. Turn and trust. Day by day, moment by moment, look to him for life. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you want to know him? Do you want to know real life? Go ahead and mark that on your communication card. Let us know. We would love to help you experience life with Jesus. Now let's worship him. 
not for the wonders he performs, but for the wonder that he is. So now, go into this world walking with Jesus, knowing him, serving him, obeying him, and finding life in him. And sharing that life, sharing the goodness of God with the world who needs it. Amen. Have a great week.